Hello and welcome to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name is Jack Lomas and thanks for joining me. This episode I'll be interviewing James Swanston, founder and CEO of Voyage Control, hearing about their work transforming logistics across the construction, ports and events industries. Before we dive into it, let me tell you a little bit about the Future Engineering Club. Founded in 2019, the Future Engineering Club exists as an industry working group focused on enabling collaboration between construction tech startups, industry decision makers and venture capital investors. We've welcomed over 400 industry leaders over the series of events, helping to enable four term sheets issued from investors to startups, three commercial partnerships, one product partnership between startups and lots of hiring in between. Now for the episode. James is the founder of Voyage Control, a technology business focused on making logistics more efficient. He has run a number of businesses as well as serving as an officer in the Australian and British armies, with tours of duty in East Timor, Iraq and Afghanistan. He was awarded the US Bronze Star, the Defence Imagery and Geospatial Organisations Outstanding Service Award and the Australian Joint Operations Command Commendation. He has a Bachelor Degree in Law international business and arts, and a master's in international relations. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of the Arts and holds the freedom of the City of London and the Worshipful Company of Cordwainers. In 2014, he received the City of London's Entrepreneur of the Year Award and was named a Rockefeller Foundation's Resilience Innovator. Hi, James. Thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, thanks, Jack. Really appreciate it. Thanks. So tell us a little bit about Voyage Control and the work that you do. Sure. So Voids Control is ultimately a digital platform to help manage logistics. And we do that across a multitude of sectors all around the world. We started in the events industry. Um, construction is now the largest sector we work in. And we also do work for ports and facilities management. And ultimately, it's about trying to make the logistics and supply chain process far more efficient for all of our customers around the world. So you mentioned that you started off in events. How did you then expand to multiple industries? In many respects, it was sort of serendipity as we've gone from one industry to the other. Our first client owned Earl's Court and Olympia, the venues in West London. They were demolishing Earl's Court and needed a solution to schedule all of their event logistics. So we did that. We then sort of realized that the platform that we build was actually around construction because when you're building an event, it's actually a construction process, albeit within a couple of days. So we sort of started moving into construction at the back end of 2015 and early 2016 when we got our first customers. Yeah, it's taken a while, but uh, that's become the biggest sector we work in. Um, off the back end of construction is really facilities management. So once a construction project is finished, it's about can we then help our customers uh, or the owners manage their logistics afterwards. Uh, the port thing, again, it was all about serendipity. I read an article about queuing and congestion at the Port of Los Angeles. So I reached out to the Trucking Association and then I flew out to Long Beach and had a meeting with them. And they were happy to find a container terminal that was willing to work with someone who was from the other side of the world in an industry that we'd never dealt with and build a solution to support them. And so that's sort of how we've expanded. And I don't think we'll, we'll necessarily stop at four industries. Everything we see on a construction project is dependent on efficient logistics management to bring everything together. How have you dealt with working across a broad supply chain and how do you secure subcontractor buy-in? The way of managing construction globally differs massively uh, based on a number of, of different things, much of which is a, around who has risk 
and also what the compliance requirements are. And this very much affects things like subcontractor buy-in. If I look at where we have some of the most regulated places, such as Europe or Australia, subcontractors know that they have to comply with certain logistics or supply chain management requirements. And certainly Australia has very, very stringent legislation there. North America is a little bit of the wild, wild west when it comes to this kind of thing. And it's much harder. We've actually just started a very large project with Madison Square Gardens, who are the developer as a customer of ours. And the way that we're securing sort of subcontractor buy-in is that by engaging with the digital sort of logistics process that we're providing, they'll get paid quicker. So that's actually quite a good sort of bonus for for these guys. It is always going to be a challenge uh, until the industry fully embraces technology. There'll always be people who are willing to do the right thing because they see that it's best for business. There'll be people that will do what they're told to because they have to, and then you'll always have the industry laggards that will just stay behind. I'm conscious that we're dealing with an industry that is sometimes dependent on whiteboards and paper tickets. Have you experienced any form of a learning curve on the client side, and how do you typically help accelerate this? In some respects, the answer that I would have given three months ago is very different from the answer that I would give now in the context of the pandemic and what that means for how construction sites need to operate. Prior to that, a lot of our customers felt that it was good enough to manage their logistics and indeed all their supply chain activities on a whiteboard or indeed not even bother about it and get their major sort of package owners to do that. Uh, The reality is that the construction industry, as I'm sure everyone who listens to this knows, is highly inefficient and one of the great areas of inefficiency is around logistics and supply chain. So there is a massive learning curve and anyone who's sort of done any reading about the technology adoption curve where you have your innovators, then early adopters, then early majority sort of does see that there's a huge amount of time that it takes to do that. One of the most important things with the learning curve, though, is when customers come on board now, ensuring that they feel that it's a product that works. And that's taken five or six years for us to get to that point where we can sort of point to you know 25 large construction companies that use our software all around the world as a degree of, I guess, dependability on our platform because you know people are concerned about adopting brand new technology. The last couple of months, I was radically transformed that though. You know, three months ago, the typical management of a construction logistics day would have been everyone stands or crowds around a whiteboard um, every morning to see what's going on. That's now somewhat impossible given the requirements for social distancing and homeworking and everything like that. So actually, I think years of the learning curve have been dramatically shortened into a couple of weeks almost uh, because of the requirements for construction sites to work differently. You have offices in London, New York, Los Angeles and Melbourne, which is incredibly impressive. As a founder, how were you able to scale your business across three continents whilst keeping the laser focus? The reality is it's, it's actually really hard to do that. There's a lot of lessons that I've learned along the way around trying to scale a business internationally. One of the biggest lessons is that going to the US is not as easy as it sounds and is actually far more complex across an array of of different things. Uh, That being said, I know that the sort of common wisdom is to try and build in your home market first before expanding overseas. I think five years ago, that would have killed us as a business because a lot of the early successes we had in the construction industry were in the United States uh, and not in the United Kingdom. And by the time we had our second 
construction client here in the United Kingdom, we already had half a dozen in the United States. The question about focus, though, is interesting as well. Given the market that we're going after, it's important for us to go global very, very quickly. So in many respects, whilst it might look like we aren't focused because we're going after multiple geographies simultaneously, actually the focus for us is just going and and doing a massive land grab everywhere we can and getting customers wherever. Part of the benefit of that, though, is actually as we work in some places, we're picking up some fairly amazing lessons which we can then transfer across the business. And a great example of that is we're just uh, rolling out a brand new module for our platform. And in order to do that well, we've spoken to 25 massive construction firms globally to get their buy-in as to what we're doing and ensure that we're incredibly informed as we build that product roadmap. That's immensely beneficial for us, which I don't think a lot of companies would be able to do if they were just focused on their own home market to start with. When you look for new hires, what value do you place on sector experience versus core capabilities? Hiring is an area that I've made a huge number of mistakes in over the last decade with this business. And I think the reality is that until someone joins a small tech company, you never really know what they're going to be like. I think what's almost more important than sector experience or indeed say core work competencies is about the ability to be flexible and entrepreneurial with everything that happens. I think that sometimes if you're bringing in people who have a lot of sector experience, they may have some biases around how things should happen or not happen. That being said, they bring you know potentially great networks and that's sort of where the value is and some of that experience. But I'd probably take a... Yeah, a young, enthusiastic, flexible person who can sort of roll with the punches and, and operate in a very you know, dynamic environment than someone who has 20 years in a construction company um, probably any day of the week. You're somewhat of an outlier in not taking any venture capital funding. What made you decide to do this? There's a couple of reasons for that. I think if I look back at the venture community five or 10 years ago when I was getting involved in this business, there is very little emphasis on logistics or construction or supply chain. And a lot of VC-focused was around consumer things, which you know, were wonderful, that didn't have real business models or anything attached to that. And so finding potential investors back then was a very different beast as to what it is now, where there are a number of VC funds or corporate ventures that are actually looking at this space. So that was the first key reason. The second key reason, again, comes back to this focus issue. I think, and certainly an experience from a previous business failure of mine is, you always really have to be focused on revenue in the business because that's ultimately what will inherently drive growth for the business. But then also, as you are driving growth and driving revenue, that's the thing that will also attract investors. And there is a opportunity cost of dropping the ball on sales whilst trying to find investment. My view is very much and still is that until we're sort of doing a significant amount of revenue and sales that I don't necessarily need to be involved in and we're becoming a good, strong, profitable business, we won't do that. And that also brings me on to another part of that, which is 
in the context of fundraising, it's far better to do it from a position of strength where you don't necessarily need the money to survive and you can grow organically as opposed to businesses that are desperate for uh, external funding to survive. So that's they're sort of the reasons that we've done that. And it certainly does make us an outlier. The final point on that is, and I spoke to a good mate of mine who, yeah, he's raised $30 million. And something that he said to me, I think is, is very true. And that is that when you're going through the VC process, your customer almost becomes the investor rather than the, say, construction company. And you become more focused on raising the next round and deriving more value for your shareholders or potential shareholders. And it potentially takes your eye off the customer. That's probably the other key reason why I've done that. James, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And I'll see you soon. Great. Thanks, Jack.